If you are new to Redeemer and visiting, my name is Rob Heron. I'm an assistant pastor here. Very glad to have you with us, joining with us. If you have your Bibles with you, you may open up to John 4. We'll be looking at verses 16 through 30. So this is continuing on with a passage that Matt began with his sermon last week. The passage is commonly called Jesus and the Woman of Samaria, or Jesus and the Woman at the Well. And this conversation with a woman literally at a well, this outcast Samaritan woman, Jesus points her first to a source of life that's much deeper than what any well could give her, living water. And we're moving into this week, really strikes at the heart of the gospel, what it's all about, why we're here, that Jesus came to rescue sinners. And it strikes at the heart of what you and what I most deeply long for, what we most deeply need. So if you would read with me John 4, 16 through 30. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. I thank you for your truth. And I pray that your truth would set us free. um, That by your spirit we would receive uh, what we truly need to know and be known by you, and because we are loved, to love you. I pray this in your name. Amen. A few years ago, before she retired from television, Oprah Winfrey gave this interview to the Huffington Post. And the Huffington Post interviewer just asked her lots of things, but one of the things was, what has been the biggest key to your success? And Oprah answered, and she even got into what she thinks is most important in life for for anyone, not just for her. And it boiled down to this, be yourself. Most important thing is to be yourself. And this is literally what she said. She said, I had no idea that being your authentic self could make me as rich as I've become. If I had, I'd have done it a lot earlier. 
The most important thing, she's saying, is to be yourself. It's a very popular statement. If I can translate a little bit what this means to be yourself, it's step one to know yourself, your authentic, true self, who you really are, and to love yourself. Know yourself, love yourself. It's the most important key to life, to happiness, what we're truly looking for. A couple years down the road, actually this year, a guy named Adam Grant, who writes for the New York Times, he wrote, reflecting on Oprah's words here, and what he said is this. He said, for Oprah, this might be good advice, that be yourself, know yourself, love yourself. But for most people, be yourself, he says, is actually terrible advice. Nobody wants to see your true self. We all have thoughts and feelings that we believe are fundamental to our lives, but that are better left unspoken. What he's saying is that we may know ourselves, but if we really know ourselves, we'll see that there are things that we think, we feel, parts of who we are that are unlovable. And what, if, if what Adam Grant is saying is true, and I think parts of it are true. One, it says that we're looking for more than just knowing and loving ourselves. We want to be truly known and truly loved by someone besides me. Also, what he's saying there, it really strikes at the problem of the know yourself, love yourself path. Because if being truly loved means hiding part of who I am, then I'm not truly known. What's known is the part that I show to people. And if I'm not truly known, if there's something that I'm hiding, then how can I possibly be truly loved? Isn't it just the version of me that I present to people that's being loved? That's the problem. But truly, what we long for is both to be known and to be loved by someone outside of ourselves. Another pastor named Tim Keller said this, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. What you and I most deeply long for is to be truly known and truly loved, and that doesn't come just from me knowing and loving myself. But if other people aren't going to give that to me, if there's part of me that if, I, if they really know it, they'll reject Where do I go to be truly known and truly loved? That's the question I want to answer this morning by looking at this passage of Jesus and the woman of Samaria in two ways. Looking at the need that we all have and the gift that Jesus gives. Just really simply, the need and the gift, two points. So first, the need. Jesus exposes this woman's need in this passage in two ways. He exposes gently the need that she has, first by exposing her sin. If you would look at your bulletins or your Bibles, we're going to start with verse 16. Jesus is here changing the topic of conversation and the direction. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. Understandably, maybe we can imagine this woman might be a little bit taken off guard by this statement. Previously, they've been talking about living water, already moving into weird territory. And here he says, go call your husband and come here. And what she says is a very short response in verse 17. I have no husband. 
It's a short response, and it's a mask. Jesus knows there's more to her story than just, I have no husband. What he says, the end of verse 17, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. What Jesus is indicating is that this woman has been married five times. The men she was married to have either divorced her or they've died. But either way, now the man that she's living with, in a relationship with, is not her husband. In ancient Samaritan society, this would have made her the sinner of sinners. It would have made her an outcast. She would be viewed as, it's horrible to say, a whore. An adulteress. She was not welcomed. She was unknown. For her, this would have been probably, I imagine, the reason why she would say to herself, I will never be truly loved because whoever knows this about me will reject me. Maybe you remember from last week, the reason why she's at the well at midday is because more people wouldn't go there then. And she was probably afraid of being ridiculed and shamed in public for living with a man who is not her husband. And Jesus is exposing this shame and this sin in her. Why? It's not to continuously shame her. It's not to add shame to shame. If you notice, he says, you are right in saying I have no husband. He says, what you have said is true. He's finding a point of gentle connection. He's not saying you are a liar and a whore. He's exposing this deep sin in her life to show her and expose her true need to be known, to be loved. She's unknown to her community, and she is unloved. And we assume that she has gone from man to man searching for the love that she so deeply wants. But Jesus is exposing for her And to our eyes that she has a deeper need to be truly known and truly loved. But Jesus also exposes her need through exposing her worship. She understandably changes the conversation in verse 19. She says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. She changes the conversation from her sin, that being the topic, to this current theological debate about where true worship happens. The Jewish people knew that God had placed his temple, the true place of worship, in Jerusalem. But the Samaritans found a way of justifying belief that the true place of worship was in their region, on a mountain there. And so she brings up this theological discussion. Why? Maybe it's because she's uncomfortable and she wants to change the topic. Maybe she's intrigued. She says, I perceive that you are a prophet. And the Samaritan expectation for a savior was that he would primarily be a prophet who would know all things and renew true worship. And she says, I see that you are a prophet. And she tests him. She says, so tell me, where is the place of true worship? And the first thing he says is that your worship and what you're clinging to in your worship is insufficient. Look at verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So he's saying, 
a time is coming when this debate won't be all that valuable. I think this woman has brought up this topic at least in part because even though she is an outcast, she has, she's clung to some hope that where she is, this mountain really is the true place of worship. She may be an outcast in her society, but at least she can identify with something that's meaningful, valuable, something that will give her love. And what Jesus says is, it's not really going to be that big of a deal. But more than that, he adds in verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. And what he's saying there is that God did reveal true worship to the Jewish people. So he's saying, even if things aren't going to be, aren't going to stand, this discussion isn't going to be that important as things are now, you're worshiping the wrong thing. Your worship is empty. Let's think about how this woman must be feeling. Not only has Jesus exposed this sin and shame in her life, he's exposed that the thing that she's clinging to, all of her worship is empty. Where she's looking for, what she's truly longing for, to be known, to be loved, it's shallow. When I first started my job at Redeemer, uh, I had the office right there where Matt Seipel is now, that middle office right there. And we placed two benches in my office, and they were unpainted. And I was asked if I wanted someone to paint them for me, but I wanted to impress the staff and tell them, show them how handy I am. I said, I'll stain it myself. The only problem was, I'm not handy. <laughs> that was the first problem. So I went out, and I thought, I've got this. So I go get a can of wood stain, and I bring it into my office, and I crack it open and immediately get to work. And I just take the top layer and I lather it over the first bench and just pour it all over it. And as I work, I see that it's, it doesn't look quite right. It's supposed to be dark. It's light, very thin. So I think, no worries, just need another coat. So I take another scoop off the top and pour it all over the benches. And it starts to look like someone just took a wheelbarrow full of maple syrup and they just dumped it all over these benches. And not only that, if you've ever worked with stain, the fumes start billowing into my office. And the fumes are gathering, and my, these benches look terrible. And so I don't want anyone to see it, because I'm thinking, I'm going to be fired for being a terrible wood stainer <laughs> in the first couple of weeks that I'm a redeemer. So I close the door, <laughs> and I think, okay, I could fix this. So I take another layer off the top surface, and I pour it on there, fumes billowing, I start to get sick. And the fumes start leaving my office, even underneath the door, getting into the sanctuary. And I think, I mean, our church is going to smell like a chemical spill forever. (laughs) I soon after realized my mistake. I've been dealing with this can of of stain, just been dealing with the surface layer, the top. And what I hadn't done is actually stirred the stain. What I really needed was at the bottom. Seems simple. At the time, it was not, so do not judge. (laughs) Very simple, but I was dealing with the surface. What I needed was much, much deeper. And when the fumes reached me, rather than crying out for help, all I did was close the door in fear, wanting to mask what I had done. And like the Samaritan woman, what we worship, what we look to for love is shallow. Maybe 
parallel to her experience, you have looked for it from other people, from others' acceptance, being affirmed by people around you, wanting desperately to be loved by your community or by one person, longing to find someone who will love you and welcome you and accept you enough. Maybe, like the Samaritan woman, you find something to cling to. You not only bow down, but you find things to cling and attach your identity to. Say, this will be valuable enough, and if I can just cling hard enough, then maybe in the end I will be loved. If I'm completely honest, for me, that can easily become my theological knowledge. I spent a lot of time studying in grad school, and what I like to think very often is that if I just know enough theology, and if I'm on the right side theologically, that means I'm okay. That means God will love me. I cling to that because I'm uncomfortable with the idea that my need goes deeper than what I can possibly fit into my head, what I can give to myself. It's just scraping the surface. What do you cling to? What do you bow down to? Do you cling to a stable family life? Do you cling to your job, your achievements? Do you cling to getting into the University of Georgia? You answer it. What is it? What is the thing that you cling to or bow down to to say, this will get me the love I want? And does it really give that to you? No. When we're just pouring these things under our need to be loved, it it produces these fumes of insecurity and fear in our lives. And what do we do with those fumes? Like the Samaritan woman, we want to mask them. We don't want people to see us as weak or as needy. That So often our confession of sin is half-hearted. It's barely scratching the surface. We'd much rather talk about what's wrong with the world, what's wrong with politicians, what's wrong with other people, than what's wrong with us. The needs we have. The pain we have. The sin we have. Our failures, our weaknesses, we want to mask them push them away, and so we cling and we hide and our need goes so much deeper than this. So that's the first thing. Our need is to be truly known and truly loved, but where do we find that? Secondly, the gift. And Jesus shows that he is the gift himself. If you look back at your passage, he not only has showed this woman that her ideas about worship are insufficient and empty, but he points her gently and graciously to a deeper place of worship. He says to her in verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And then in the Gospel of John, when Jesus refers to his hour, it's referring to his death, resurrection, and exaltation. He's saying An hour is coming, what I'm going to do that will change worship. But it's not only coming, he says in verse 23, that it's already here. It's now here. So what Jesus is saying is that the one that will give you the gift, will give you what you truly long for, to be known and be loved, it comes from what I'm going to give to you. My work, my death, my resurrection. But he goes even further than that. He says that true worship will happen in spirit and in truth in verse 23. And he repeats that again. 
in spirit and in truth. What does that mean? Verse 24, he says that God is spirit. So God is invisible. This is what he's like. He's life-giving. He's infinitely deep. And God says that true worship happens in spirit, meaning through the spirit that he gives, which is through Jesus. And he says the true worship, true knowing of him and receiving what he has to give comes in truth. Worshiping the way that God has revealed himself through Jesus. So not only is Jesus saying that what you long for comes through what I will do for you, but it comes through me. He's saying, I am the true place of worship. I am the one that if you belong to me, if you know my love, and if you know that you are known by me, then you are known and loved by the Father. If you belong to me, because I'm the Son of God, you belong to the Father. What you must truly long for is me. To be truly known by me, truly loved by me. In verse 25, it's like she is, has to test him one more time because this is too good to be true. She says, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus answers her in verse 26. I who speak to you am he. What this woman, this outcast, this woman who has been unknown and unloved, what she has most desperately wanted for her entire life is sitting right in front of her and offering her a free gift. And this will change everything. A guy named Greg Luganis, who was a famous uh, international Olympic diver, he was interviewed once and asked, how do you cope with international diving and the pressures that happen when you're competing? And this is what he said in one interview. He said that, Even if I blow this dive and mess it up, my mother will still love me. Even if I blow it, no matter what, I have a mother who will love me. And what Jesus is promising this woman is is like this, but even greater. We have a father who infinitely loves us, who knows us completely, truly, and says, I love you. So worship for this woman is no longer going to be a fight for love, but a response to infinite love given. And the gift is received. You look in verse 27. The disciples come back and they marvel that Jesus was talking to this woman, which at the time would be near scandalous. But they don't ask him the question, uh, why are you talking with her? They don't ask her, what do you seek? Probably because they know or assume at this point he has a good reason for talking with her and speaking with her. He does have a good reason to fulfill her longings. And this woman, consumed by being known and being loved, receiving the gift that Jesus has given her, it says that in verse 28, she left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And people left and were coming to him. So this woman who was masking her own life has become a messenger from the gospel. She has gone from outcast to insider, knowing how deeply known and loved she truly is. And this transforms her entire life. 
A few weeks ago, we, we had a middle school service project for the youth group, and we did a couple different things. But one of the things we did with the group is we took a few students to go visit international students, those who are uh, undergrad and postgrad students living here in the States. And we brought them care packages, very simple things, but we were going to go and visit with them. And one of our middle school students requested to go and visit an international student whose native language our student has been studying. So this student of ours went with the group and visited and went into this international student's home, and they gave this international this care package filled with some candy and some just small household items, very simple. What the international student did is grab it and hold it close and look down at it and just began weeping, crying heavily, these tears pouring out, looking at this gift. And the international student sat down and the group went with the student and the international began talking about how difficult and painful life was and is and how difficult it is for the student to believe in God's love. And our middle school student looked at the international and was able to speak in this other person's native language. And this is what our student said, was essentially, God loves you, he is your father, you are his child. In this international's own language. And the tears kept flowing. The gift, very simple, what it pointed to, these words that so badly had been needed, what the student had so badly needed to hear. You have a father who knows you, and you are his child whom he loves. And this conversation with this woman might seem simple, but what it's pointing to is what she and what all of us most deeply, most truly long for, that Jesus truly knows you, that the sin and the shame in your life, that Jesus knows all of it. And he knows the very depths of it. He even knows more than you do. And as a Christian this morning, you are called to reflect on this, to think that Jesus knows everything. Not only what you bring to the surface, but he knows the, he, he not only knows how you have worshipped other things besides him, but he knows the desires that underneath that idolatry. He knows everything. If you are a non-Christian here this morning, the same is true for you that Jesus knows you. He knows why your heart is guarded. He knows why you don't trust. And he calls you to look to him and to know that he offers you true, complete love. Jesus truly loves you. So many of us in here this morning believe that if people really knew me, they really knew everything about me, they would run away. They would turn tail and get as far away from me as they possibly could. What Jesus shows us here is he knows everything, and with all of that knowledge, he wants you for his own. That he wants you to know the deep love that he has for you, and the deep love the Father has for you. He knows, and he truly loves. How will this change us? Receiving the gift of being fully known and truly loved. It'll set us free from the need to look for our deepest need of love from anything else. 
that we no longer have to impress people. We no longer have to impress ourselves. We don't have to bow down to what other people think about us. We don't have to cling to and find our identity in our own achievements. Jesus says, you have my love as a gift. But not only that, you have me. More than that, you have me. That your identity, your value, your worth is in me. I've known you and I've loved you. We no longer have to mask our weakness. We no longer have to mask the guilt and the shame that we feel. And we can, yes, wisely, but boldly, with taking bold risks, actually share our sin and our weakness with one another. To be open with one another about the needs that we truly have. And as we experience this freedom, consumed by the gift that Jesus gives us, we will start to want to know and to love others, to see them in their weakness, to care for them in their weakness, and to proclaim the knowledge and love of Jesus to them. And we'll move towards people like this Samaritan woman, the unknown, the unloved, because that's the kind of people Jesus seeks, people like me, people like you. This will change everything. Author Brennan Manning, a Christian author, was asked once uh, what the Apostle John, who wrote this, this book, what he would say about his core identity, what's most important in his life. And what Brennan Manning said is this, that if John were asked, what is your primary identity in life? He would not reply, I am a disciple an apostle, an evangelist, an author of one of the four Gospels, but rather, I am the one Jesus loves. What would it change in your life to say that what's most important and who you really are is I am the one that Jesus knows, I'm the one that Jesus loves. The one who completely knows you loved you completely. He gave his life for you at the cross. He has risen for your hope. He reigns right now for your future. And that's a future of completely being known, completely being loved. We know him because he has known us. We love him because he's loved us first. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this truth that we are given the gift of being truly known and truly loved by you through the gift of Jesus, that because we belong to him, we belong to you. I pray that this truth would sink in and set us free from the need to find love from anything else besides you and the need to mask our deep need for you. I pray this in your name. Amen.